Morning, everyone. Welcome to Restoration. Uh, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you all uh, this morning for worship, whether you are uh, new and visiting, whether you're a longtime member here. Um, we're glad to be with you uh, for worship this morning. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Dan said we were beginning a new series, a vision series, on what our church is about, right? And we had taken a, a break from our series in Acts, but Dan pointed us back to Acts chapter 11 and the church at Antioch for the foundation of this vision series. And he highlighted four things that defined that church at Antioch that would define our church or that we would hope would define our church. Those four things were restoration that he talked about last week, maturity that we'll talk about this week, and then service and evangelism. Now last week, this idea of restoration, he began with our vision statement, right? This idea that God is at work restoring people, communities, cultures in the greater St. Louis area and the world through the trans transforming power of the gospel. And we saw an amazing story of restoration through the life of Zacchaeus. We saw that Jesus restored his identity, his home, his relationships. And Dan talked about how Jesus does the same for us. He restores our identities, he restores our homes, he restores our relationships to become more like his. Our lives become more rooted in and defined by Jesus's life. Now we have a phrase for what that sort of rooting looks like, what that kind of restoration looks like in our life over time, and it's called maturity in Christ. Now normally when we think about the idea of maturity, we think about a priority list. To be mature just means that Jesus is now at the top of our priority list. But what Dan got us to last week was that Jesus actually becomes part of everything on our priority list. That's what real maturity in Jesus looks like. Our lives become more rooted and defined by Jesus. Now we get that language about maturity in Christ from the Apostle Paul, he talks about it all the time, about the way the gospel restores us and makes us more like Jesus, how it makes us more mature in Christ. Now, if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan or in our men and women's Bible studies, we've been looking at some of the letters that Paul writes to these young churches, some of the ways that he encourages and challenges them towards maturity in Christ. So we're going to look at one of those passages this morning, because the vision of our church is not just that God would restore you, but that you would grow and that you would flourish, that you would mature in Christ. So I'm going to invite up Emily Crutchfield to read for us this morning. She's going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 32. You can find that on page 977 of the Pew Bible. It'll be up on the screens for you. As Emily reads, I want you to listen for the way that Paul describes maturity in Christ. How do we mature and what's the evidence that it's happening? Let's give our attention now to God's word. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. Uh, we do ask that it would uh, encourage us, that it would challenge us, that as we think about this idea of maturity, uh, that we would see in your word what it looks like to grow in you, to grow and to mature so that we might look more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
So anytime I, uh, I read these first few verses that Emily just read for us, uh, I'm reminded about a conversation that I would have with college students when I was in campus ministry, right? We would want students to, to think more about having conversations with non-Christians in their life, or even with other Christians who might have questions for them, right? So we would ask students, we would say, what would you, what would you tell a fellow student who asked you about Jesus? Or what would you tell a fellow student who might ask you about how to grow in their faith? And almost every time the students would say, well, I would tell them to talk to you or talk to my pastor, right? Now, what is getting at the heart of that is that these students had the same idea that we talked about earlier with maturity, that maturity was a priority list. And so who in my life do I know who has Jesus at the top of the priority list? Well, it's my campus minister or my pastor. So, of course, I'm going to point Jesus to them. Right? But when you hear about doing a vision series, I know the tendency can be similar. Right? We talk about all these different aspects of our church. It's easy to think, okay, I, I get it. This is what the leaders of our church are about. Right? These are the things that they're doing. The staff, the elders, the ministry leaders, they have ministry jobs. They can be about restoration and maturity and service and evangelism. And I support that by showing up on Sunday, maybe giving a little bit of money. Sometimes I volunteer, right? But there can be a tendency to think that the leaders of the church do the ministry of the church and everybody else is just an observer. Now, the reason that I know it's easy to think that way is because it wasn't just students who thought that way. It was me. Right? Even as a campus minister, I would show up to church on Sunday and think about myself as just an observer. Right? The church staff, they're the ones involved in the vision of the church. I had other things to do, even if they were good things, like ministry on campus. Right? Even as someone in full-time ministry, I'd fallen into the trap of our culture, the individualism, the consumerist mindset that says, I show up on Sunday as a consumer. So you staff, you leaders, do the work of the ministry, and, and I'll watch. So these first few verses aren't just a challenge to students that I worked with. They were a challenge to me, and I hope they're a challenge to you this morning. God certainly has called specific people into ministry roles. But verse 11 and 12 say that he's called people into those roles to do what? To equip the saints for the work of of the ministry for building up the body of Christ, right? The vision and the work of the church is for each and every person in this room who's a follower of Jesus, right? The staff and the leaders are called to specific work, but that work is to equip you for the work of ministry. Now, the reason I mentioned that illustration is because that's where maturity in Christ begins, by recognizing that we're not just observers, God's called each of us to be part of the work of restoration that he's doing in the world. And so the church is equipping you, it's equipping us to mature into that work, to ask the questions about how we're gifted and how we can serve in this place. Notice the rest of the language in verses 12 and 13, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
in the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. It's very clear that we're all maturing together as a body with an end in mind, becoming like Jesus. So as I said a moment ago, maturity in Christ begins by understanding the call that each one of us has to the ministry of the church in the world. God's work in the world in us and through us. So what does that maturity actually look like? Well, that's going to be our three points this morning. I want to look at three ways that we see maturity talked about by Paul in this passage. We see maturity in belief. We see maturity in body. And we see maturity in behavior. Let's look at those three, each beginning by maturity and belief. Look back at verses 13 through 15, right? Verse 13 talks about growing in our faith and our knowledge about Jesus, right? As Christians, we are people who really do believe something. Specifically, we believe something about Jesus, right? We have a unity. We have a faith. We have a knowledge, Paul says, about the Son of God. That's why we recite things like the Apostles' Creed together, because we really do believe that those things are true. Now, that might sound simple to some of you, but it's actually incredibly important because we, li we live in a world where belief and what to believe in is all over the place, right? Verse 14, Paul says that the opposite of this belief, this maturity in belief, is instead being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by winds of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, I don't think I have to convince you that that's what we see happening in the world, right? There was an article in The Correspondent a couple years ago, and it was called How the Truth Has Become Whatever Makes You Click, right? It talks about how the source of what we believe in our culture has become algorithms, right? Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, they control nearly all of our digital infrastructure. And so the article goes on to say that the algorithms that these companies and these platforms use, quote, largely determine what we believe, know, and think. They determine what information is consumed, in what form, and to what extent. And so when you combine these algorithms with the amount of money that's generated by online advertising, what is true has become whatever makes you click the most on your phone or your computer. Isn't that exactly what verse 14 is saying? People are tossed to and fro by the waves. They're carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're carried about by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Right? We see it in our politics, we see it in our economics, we see it in our cultural values, the, thing that, the things that we're told to care about or to not care about, the things we're told that we should love or hate or value, all the ways that we're told to believe. Now, let me make it clear, not every wave or wind that the world sends our way is wrong. Right? Not every belief that the world pushes us with is wrong. Some of them might be very good things. But the point is, how are you supposed to know? Right? How, when the world tells you to think a certain way, 
or believe a certain way or behave a certain way, how are you supposed to know if that thing is really good or not? Is there any objective source for what's true? Well, for Christians, the answer is God's word. Now, we don't have the time to get into a discussion this morning about the authenticity of the Bible or why we believe that the Bible is God's word, although we would love to have that conversation with you. Please, you know, reach out to any one of the staff. We'd love to talk about that. Again, we don't have time for it this morning. But as Christians, the answer for us is God's word. So when the world tells us something to believe, our question is, does that agree with what God's word says? Because being a Christian means that we have a maturity and belief that anchors us to the person of Jesus. We actually believe things about the world and about people because of what Jesus says. And so we have this maturity and belief in Jesus and his words that anchor us when those waves and those winds come. So the question for us this morning is, are you maturing in belief? Are you becoming more and more confident in God's word in the face of other belief systems? Now here at Restoration, that's why we have a Bible reading plan. It's why we have ACE classes. It's why we have Bible studies and sermons because we want you to have access to God's word so that you can mature in belief. We recite creeds. We recite catechisms. We teach about the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have curriculum in our kids' classes because we want to have a unity in our faith and knowledge and belief in the Son of God, in Jesus, in this covenant community. So we want you to be able to read and to hear and to study and to learn more about what God says in his word so that you can be anchored more confidently in this world where what you're supposed to believe has become so uncertain. Now, as I walked through that first point, that maturity and belief, I hope you heard the amount of times that we talked about unity and community and body as it relates to our belief. That's because Paul goes on to say that maturity in Christ and maturity in belief is never done in isolation. It also requires a maturity of body, not your physical body, but this body, right? The body of Christ. Look back at verses 15 and 16. The belief that we have as Christians, what verse 15 calls the truth, is to be communicated in love. And when that happens, Paul says, we grow up into every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Well, over and over again in the New Testament, the church, the covenant community of God is described as a body, right? Jesus is the head of that body, and the members, us, make up the parts of that body with our different gifts and our different callings, the different ways that God has equipped each of us. We're part of the body, joined and held together, Paul says. And our belief in God's word, belief in God's truth, matures us together as a body. 
And so maturity in Christ, maturity in belief, happens in the context of the maturity of the body of Christ. I've quoted this before, but the famous Christian poet John Donne famously said, no man is an island. No one matures in isolation. Right? We saw this during COVID. Even in COVID, when we were forced to be isolated, we created means of being together, even if they were unsatisfactory. We created means of being together as best we could because we knew that we needed the body. We needed one another in the midst of that. Now, just because we need the body doesn't mean we also don't engage in individual nourishment of our own maturity, right? Just like an athlete is part of a team, they also train individually. We don't neglect our own individual growth, right? We don't not study the word individually or, or pray individually, but we don't let that pendulum swing to an extreme. The New Testament doesn't have any concept of an individual Christian outside the body of Jesus, right? That's another way that our culture has taught us that's against God's word, right? Our culture says religion is individual. What's important about faith is whatever you decide, right? Faith is a private, personal concept. It shouldn't come out in public. You have a personal relationship with Jesus, great for you. I don't need to know about it, and I certainly don't think you need to have it apply to me at all. But maturity in Christ, according to Paul, is that it always occurs in the body. Maturity in belief and maturity in body. So what's your relationship to the body? Like I said earlier, do you view yourself like I did for a long time as just a spectator here? You show up on Sundays and you just observe. Or do you see, like Paul says, that you're part of the joints and the pieces of this body? Do you use your gifts to, to serve here? Do you invest in the life of other people that are here? Do you give your time and your talent and your money to this place? Not because we tell you to or you feel guilty, but because being part of this body means that you're committed to the care and the welfare and the growth of everyone else that's here. One of my wife's favorite movies is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. We watch it every Christmas, if you've seen it before. Um, there's a great scene in the movie. There's a run on the bank, right? What that means is that everybody's scared about the state of the economy. They're scared that the bank's going to collapse, and so they want to go get all of their money out of the bank. The problem is the bank doesn't have all of their money and cash sitting in a vault, right? They've loaned that money to other people. And so in this particular scene, everybody wants their money from Jimmy Stewart's character who's running the bank. So they come to him at the bank, and there's this line of people, and this is what he says to them. He says, you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in the safe. Your money's not here. Your money's in Joe's house, right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and in Mrs. Macklin's house, and a hundred others. You're, lend, you're lending them the money they need to build. Right? Well, that's similar to what happens in the church here at Restoration. Each of you is using your gifts and your talents and your money and giving it here so that the person in the row with you can grow. 
The person in front of you can grow. And they're giving what they have so that you can grow. So together, then, we grow as a community. We grow as a family. We mature as a body. That's the nature of the church. Let's look at our last point. This maturity of belief and this maturity in body also comes with a maturity in behavior. You can see this in verses 17 through 32. We're not going to go back through it all in detail, but I want you to notice the emphasis on the type of behavior that we ought to have that's in this section. Many of your Bibles have a, a subtitle of this section called The New Life. Right? And Paul begins in verse 17 saying, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, I know for some of you, when you hear that word behavior, a wall comes up. Right? Too often, many of you were told, or at least it was implied to you, that your behavior, the way that you lived in this world, was the means to righteousness. Right? If you behave a certain way, then you'll be all right with God. He'll be happy with you. But I want you to remember the order of this chapter, right? Paul is talking about this way of living, this new behavior, as a result of your faith in Jesus and your membership in God's community. Faith in Jesus always comes first. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Maturity in behavior does not mean that your righteousness before God, his acceptance of you has anything to do with how you live. As followers of Jesus, our righteousness, our acceptance by God is 100% from and through Jesus. We are all justified only because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. But according to the Bible, that will always result in a change in our behavior. It will always produce new life in us. Verses 22 through 24, Paul says that what we learned about Jesus has led to a putting off of the old self and a putting on of the new self. And that that should result in the list of things he talks about in verses 25 through 32. Now we speak the truth instead of lies. Now we're angry but without sinning. Now we work instead of steal. We speak words of encouragement rather than words of corruption. We don't live with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, but we live with tenderheartedness. Followers of Jesus must absolutely live differently. How much of the criticism of Christianity in the world today is that our behavior doesn't line up with our belief? We're often missing maturity in behavior and please again hear that the right way your maturity in behavior doesn't have anything to do with your righteousness before God it was earned completely fully totally by Jesus on the cross but if Jesus really gave his life for me to make me more like him then how can I say I believe in him and belong to him if I don't begin to look more like him I'm not going to do that perfectly you're not going to do that perfectly. That's not going to be complete in this life. But I can't claim maturity in Jesus without seeing maturity in behavior as a result of my life, without seeing my own heart 
and my own mind and my own actions becoming slowly more like Jesus. That's part of the restoration that Dan talked about last week. A restoration of everything about us, including the way that we live in the world. Restoring us back to the way that God intended it to be. So we've seen that maturity in Christ is multifaceted, right? It includes maturity in belief. It includes in maturity in body. It includes maturity in behavior. As we end our time, I'm going to invite up uh, Steve Wolf to share a little bit about how he's seen that maturity happen in his own life. Now, I made it clear to Steve that we're not inviting him up because he has it all together, right? Because he's the epitome of all these aspects of maturity. We joked uh, as we were meeting together that if you want to know that he's not, just go talk to his wife after the service. <laughs> but I am inviting Steve up because I have seen his maturity in Jesus growing, right? I've heard his story. I've seen it in his life as we've spent time together. I've seen him growing in maturity as a, as a father and a husband, as a community group leader, right? As a follower of Jesus. And so as we do this vision series, we want you to see real stories of real people in our body so that you can be encouraged in your own faith, in your own journey of maturity. And I think Steve's got a great story about how some of those things have and are happening in his life. So I'm going to invite Steve up to share for a couple minutes uh, before we go to the table for communion. Steve. So actually, uh, when I reminded Natalie that I was going to be talking uh, after John's sermon on spiritual maturity, her exact words were, and I quote, ha ha. <laughs> so you can interpret that how you will. Uh, so in my early life, my, uh, my parents were divorced, and I spent half of my time in church and the other half of the time in a non-religious family. And I learned very early on um, how to compartmentalize my life. So I kind of did whatever I needed to do to fit in with whatever group. So if I was at church, I would do whatever I needed to do to be fitting in with the Christian folk. And if I was out with my other friends, it would be a little bit different. And uh, I kind of just had this need to fit in. And eventually, as I got older, um, I really just kind of felt like I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. And for me, I thought that that looked like leaving the church and leaving the faith. So... I walked away from the church and started really um, when John talked about going to and fro. That was kind of my life. I pursued whatever fleeting interest or pleasure or uh, whatever phase I wanted to go through and just kind of bounced around, um, which really ended up leading to a lot of low spots in my life. Um, it led to some difficult times and uh, also led to a really uh, unhealthy relationship, which turned into an unhealthy marriage that ultimately ended in divorce. Uh, and then in that time period, uh, similar to when I left the faith, uh, I used that as an excuse to, again, do whatever I wanted to. So pursuing whatever uh, fleeting pleasures or interest I had, um, drinking really heavily, partying as much as I wanted to, doing anything to fill the gap uh, that really, in retrospect, would only be filled by God. Uh, and in this time, despite myself, God was still working. Uh, God was healing relationships that had been broken. God was working through those relationships to soften my heart. 
and eventually to pull me to him, to pull me back to him. Uh, and so when I first came to faith, uh, I had this expectation of, wow, I'm a, I'm a Christian now, so all my behavior is just going to work itself out because I'm a Christian, and, and Christians act differently. Uh, but that's not what happened. I still, I still liked to party. I still, you know, I still had this habit of, you know, just kind of pursuing whatever fleeting interests or fleeting pleasures uh, were out in the world. And that led to a lot of disappointment and discouragement and shame. Um, and so because my behavior wasn't where I thought it needed to be, I would pull away from the body of Christ. Like I should pull away from my microphone. I would pull away from the body of Christ and I would go kind of off and on with my involvement in Christian community. And that made it a lot harder for me to strengthen my beliefs because I wasn't as involved, I wasn't as planted. Um, and over time, you know, I learned that I didn't need to be necessarily so focused on behavior. Um, I had this misconception that maturity, spiritual maturity, was just about behavior, that it really was reserved for people who were uh, perfect, who had it all together. Um, but that's not any of us. That's Jesus. And that's who we do look to and we hope to uh, become more and more like him as we become more rooted in, and uh, defined by faith in our life. Um, so I found that it wasn't necessarily a formula of like, okay, get your behavior together, then you can be part of the body, then you can really study God's word seriously. For me, it was um, those pieces interacting together. So for example, as I became more uh, rooted in the body of Christ, I found that it was a lot easier for me to strengthen my belief because I was involved in Bible studies. I was involved in book studies. I was talking to people. Um, it became a lot easier to change behaviors because I was involved in the body of Christ and I could talk to people who shared these same values as me. And I still struggle at times. I still struggle with all of these things. Sometimes, you know, when it comes to being involved with the body of Christ, some Sunday mornings, I, I'm just not feeling it. I'm like, ooh. I don't necessarily want to go to church. Sometimes I don't want to do CG on Fridays. Sometimes, you know, I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to strengthen my beliefs. Sometimes I don't want to uh, live in Christian behaviors. You know, I don't want to have these moral values. Um, and when I look at the short view, I can still really get discouraged to think, man, I'm not changing at all. My life hasn't changed in any ways. But if I pull out a little bit and look at the long view, I can really see that God has worked in my life in, in huge ways, and he's continuing to work in my life. He's continuing to change my heart and change my life in every way. And that spiritual maturity isn't just for Dan and John. It's not just for deacons and elders. It's really for me, and it's for all of us as followers. 